weeks, you will know that we have started a series uh, called Marriage and Sexuality, and uh, it's been a very good series so far, and I'm looking forward to where it's going to go. Uh, and so I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction, which is a little bit of a review if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks. But as always, if you want to catch up, all of our sermons are online. I would encourage you to go check those out. Um, and so, so far, I'm just going to give you a couple of bullet points on what we've looked at so far. And obviously, these are just bullet points. They don't go into all the depth that Pastor Justin was able to go into over these last couple weeks. So again, make sure you go back and watch those if you haven't. The first thing we looked at uh, that when we got together to talk about what is marriage, like what is the marriage, what does marriage look like? And we saw that marriage is a God-initiated covenant between a man and a woman. I know that's a very simple definition. Uh, uh, that is exactly what it is, though. It's a God-initiated. God is the one that places people together in marriage, but it's a covenant between everyone involved, uh, uh, not just a contract, but a covenant, and it's between a man and a woman. And those are the basic truths that we saw in the first week uh, and lots of other things that kind of flow from that. That's what we understand marriage is. It's not what the world necessarily might say it is. It is a bond. It's a covenant that it can that should not be broken. The second week, last week, we looked at then, if that's what marriage is, what is the purpose of marriage? Why does marriage exist in one sense? And there's lots of sub-levels to this, but... The main purpose of marriage, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God, to glorify God, to make him important, to show him to be important because he already is important, to show him to be glorious and important. So it's to glorify God by pursuing holiness and displaying Jesus's love to the world, that marriage through Pursuing holiness together as a couple and displaying Jesus' love to the world through the relationship that you have is a way to glorify God, to make him look good, to bring his importance to bear, to see. And in that conversation last week, we talked about the fact uh, that God's glory is the main purpose, but there's other purposes that fall under that. Companionship, procreation, uh, and... Uh, and all of those things, though, all go back to glorifying God. That is the point. And so, I want to talk for a few minutes just to add a little bit to this idea of living for God's glory because it's going to become very important as we go into what we're going to talk about today, which I'll introduce in just a moment. But we need to understand then, if God's glory is the ultimate purpose of marriage, I read this today, and I read a lot of books, so I, I can't even really tell you which book is from what, but uh, I read this quote. Basically, it says this, God's glory is the tie that binds more than anything else. A lot of times we talk about what keeps people together in marriage. Sometimes people will say, well, it's our kids that keep us together. Some people say, well, it's our attraction. You know, we really like each other. Uh, some will say that it's another reason. Maybe it's a practical reason. Maybe some people are married simply because that's how they can provide for themselves. There might be lots of reasons that would tie people together, but the only one that really is eternal that won't fade away is God's glory. Every other reason for people to come together and stay together is temporary. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how good it even is, that's, that can fade away. Even our attraction can fade and our, our feelings of love can fade and our compatibility might change. All those things can change and fade away, but God's glory being the ultimate purpose of a marriage never changes. And that can bind us together because if both people in a marriage relationship are striving for the glory of Christ, then that will bind them together eternally. 
for eternal reasons. And so that being said, and I'm going to come back to this a lot next week, but incompatibility really is a myth in a sense. Because if two people are serving and loving God together, that is all the compatibility you ever need. You know, there are, I've heard so many people say that, uh, they need to find somebody that has this list of qualities, right? There's this list. It's the, it's the marriage list. And they have 10 or 12 or some girls have 50. Whatever it is, they have, probably guys too. I don't want to pick on just the girls. But there's lists here. And, okay, if I have a future spouse, they better at least match up to at least, you know, 80% of this list. Or some of us might even say 100%. The thing is, sometimes you might not be compatible by the world standards, but if you have Jesus as the center of your relationship, then that's all the compatibility you need. And we're going to talk about that next week a little bit more. But I just wanted to bring those things out as we talk about the glory of God, because that's going to matter as we talk about what we're going to look at today. So as this is all true, that the purpose of marriage is to glorify God, marriage should be viewed as a means to an end, not the end itself. I believe that in our society today, and even in our Christian culture today, that marriage has elevated itself or been elevated to a point in which it's almost like this is where you need to get to. And if you can achieve marriage, then you have got all that you can get out of life. And I think that can be a very dangerous mentality. Because marriage being to glorify God, that's the means. Marriage is the means to the end of glorifying God, but it is not the end itself. That somehow our Christian life and our Christian world is perfectly good once we get married. That is a myth that is going to hurt not only marriages, but also singles as they look forward to marriage. Which that's what we're going to talk about next week. So, I, I, th- I thought about this. I was trying to think of an illustration that might help us to understand this. And I think we all kind of already get it anyway. But you see that the title of today's sermon is The Wedding Invitation. And we're going to talk about scripturally what that looks like too. But I started thinking about an invitation. I want you to imagine that you got an invitation in the mail and it was to uh, a royal wedding. I don't know, pick your royalty, whoever it might be. It's to a royal wedding and this invitation comes and you get really excited. You are now invited to go to a wonderful wedding and you know this wedding is going to be huge. It's going to be lavish. There, the, the wedding favors that are going to be there are going to be beyond your belief. It's going to be the greatest wedding, the greatest reception that anyone can ever go to and you have the invitation. It's in your hands. It's been sent to you and you see this invitation and you love this invitation because you are so excited that it means that you're going to be able to go to this wedding, to go to this party. And you're looking at this invitation and you realize it's a just a beautifully made invitation. Uh, the, the handwriting is, is gorgeous. The, the, it's got gold flecks in it. You know, it's, it's probably, I mean, you can, it's hefty and it's beautiful and it's perfectly made and the wording on it is great. And you just get really excited about this invitation. And as time goes on and it gets closer and closer to the wedding you're supposed to go to, you really decide that you just, this, this invitation really is the best invitation you've ever received. And so you laminate it, you know, cause you don't, you don't want it to get destroyed. Uh, then eventually as time goes on, you've laminated it, but you don't know if that's really protected it enough. So you put it in a, in a frame and you put glass over it and you hang it on your wall. And every day you wake up, you go over, you go over and you look at the invitation hanging on your wall in the frame and you're just in awe of how beautiful that invitation is. And eventually what happens is it gets time to come to the wedding 
And you realize that on the invitation, the invitation says this invitation must be surrendered as your ticket to get into the wedding. And then you're looking at this invitation and you're thinking, wait a minute, this is a beautiful invitation that I have set up here to be so, so important in my life. How can I give that up? That, that's not right. I can't give up that invitation. And you choose not to go to the wedding because you want to keep the invitation. That's dumb, right? So the point of that invitation was not and is not for you to put on your wall to look at every day. Although if you're forgetful, maybe that would be important. But that's not the purpose of the invitation. The purpose of the invitation is, hey, come to my wedding. Come to my wedding, be ready, and be there. The the person that sent that invitation did not send you the nice invitation so that you would frame it. They sent you the nice invitation so that you would know that it was your place that they were holding for you to come and to enjoy their wedding, to enjoy the reception, and to be blessed, and to enjoy it to its fullest. And if you just took time to look at that invitation and be obsessed with that invitation and made that invitation what was important instead of the wedding itself, then you've missed out completely. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with how we view marriage. I believe that a lot of us, especially in our contemporary Christian culture, and, and I, that we feel like we have put marriage on this pedestal that is so high that we have forgotten the purpose of why it even exists. I think we do this as married people. I think we do this as singles. So don't just think that we're going to continue to talk about marriage, and if you're sitting here today and you're not married, even if you're planning on never getting married, that somehow you don't have to listen to what's going on here, because trust me, what we're going to talk about is important for everybody to hear, and next week we get to dive into singleness. Again, that doesn't mean that married people don't come next week, because we this will all come together as we see this grand picture of how God views marriage as we talk about the fact that it is an invitation to the great wedding. So, I told you where we're going to go. Let's get there. Uh, there's a few things that we're going to look at today. But before we even get into the, uh, the meat of the outline here, I want to read to you. Jesus gives a very similar illustration to what I just gave. It's a little bit different, but I want you to listen to what Jesus is going to tell us in Luke 14, 15 through 24. Luke 14, 15 through 24. I want you to listen to this parable as Jesus says it, and then I'm going to draw your attention to one specific phrase in this passage, and that will kind of springboard us off into what we're going to look at the rest of our time together. So in Luke 14, again, we will be starting in verse 15, reading through verse 24. When one of those who reclined at a table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. 
For I tell you, none of those men whom were invited shall taste my banquet. Later on, we're going to look at some verses that come directly after this. But it's interesting that Jesus uses this illustration. He uses this parable to talk about what it's like to come to the kingdom of heaven. And he says, there's an invitation that's gone out to join the kingdom. And people are making excuses that are keeping them back from following Jesus, from pursuing the kingdom of God. And he gives a couple different excuses. I want to draw your attention to to verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. One of the excuses given to not come to the banquet was, I'm married, so how can you expect me to come to your banquet? Later on, the master says this, he's angry, and he says, nobody who was invited who made up these excuses is going to be able to come to my banquet. And obviously, Jesus isn't talking about just a banquet of eating food. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and we've got to take this very carefully, and very, we've got to make it clear and take it very importantly to see here what he says is one of the excuses that's being used is marriage itself, and I am afraid that some of us in this culture we live in have done this same thing, that somehow we have shortchanged the kingdom of God turned our back on the kingdom of God, not even realizing it because we have a greater, uh, we've placed a greater importance on our marriages. So that gets us to this main point that we're going to look at today. Marriage is important, but it is not most important. All of what I just said and all what I'm going to say today, I got to put it out to start with. I love marriage. I am married, I am happily married, I love being married, many of you love being married. Marriage is good. It is a good creation of God, it is an institution of God, it is a covenant brought to us from God, so it is from Him and all things from Him are good. Here's the problem, sometimes good things become best, but that's not marriage. Marriage is good, but it is not the best. It is important, but it is not most important. And again, this message is for everyone, those who are married now, those who will be married, and even those who will never be married. We understand that what the most important thing is the glorifying of God. It is looking forward to the marriage that we will have with Jesus, not the marriage we'll have with another person. So today we're going to do it this way. We're going to look at three principles that I see in Scripture that are going to help us to process this idea of how we should view marriage and how we should prioritize it. And then after looking at those three principles, we're going to take some time to look at three practical implications. When we get to the practical implications, I'm just going to tell you now, a lot of that is based upon I am taking application out of the principles we're looking at, and some of it is just general advice that I'm giving to you. Do not hold that as being anything authoritative. The first part is, and then we're going to take some practical implications that will help us to live out the marriages that God has called us to live out in this world we live live in. And that's where we're going. All right, so let's look at these three principles. The first principle we see in Scripture is that marriage is only for this present age. It is not eternal. When you guys get married, anybody who's gotten married, you know in the, in the oath when you're, you're going back and forth, one of the things that commonly is said, if it's fairly traditional, is to death do us part. Now think about what you're saying there. A lot of times we just talk about, well, you know, I'm going to love my spouse forever. The word forever actually right there doesn't really work if you think about it because we are pledging to death do us part. Once death comes, what does that mean about marriage? 
And Jesus talks about that in Luke 20. So turn over a few pages if you're already in Luke. We're going to be in Luke 20. This passage, I'm just warning you, is a hard passage. It's kind of sad. It might make you a little depressed, but it's truth. Chapter, or Luke 20, 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up her offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose, life, or whose wife will the woman be? For the seven all had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy attain to that to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Jesus is there's a there's a challenge that is made to Jesus. The Sadducees come to him and they're trying to make a point that there can't be a resurrection because this doesn't make sense. They reference the Leverite marriage. Uh, basically, if a brother dies, then then the next brother would step up to marry that man's wife. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. If you want to see where that was first instituted, it was in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10 specifically. But the Sadducees know this, Jesus knows this, and so they come and say, well, okay. So if there were seven men that all died, there was no children involved, the woman dies, who is her spouse when they get to heaven? When they resurrect, who is going to be married? And Jesus gives a very somber and sad answer on the surface, but it's actually a very good answer when he says, in the resurrection, there is no marriage. He says, Marriage is for this age. That age is coming. The resurrection, the future is coming in which marriage isn't a thing. So now all of a sudden we understand, wait a minute, marriage isn't eternal. Marriage is something that is for now. And it's very good for now, but it is not the thing that lasts forever. So when we say to people, I I am going to be married to you forever, that's not actually an accurate statement. Uh, You can say that I will love you to the day I die. I will be married to you to the day I die. That's perfectly great. But as the Bible tells us, as Jesus says, like, this isn't going to work. Now, in this answer, he blows out the Sadducees' question. They were trying to trap him. This whole hypothetical was probably hadn't happened, probably would never happen. Uh, but they wanted to trap him. They wanted to, to prove themselves. And, and the answer that Jesus gives blows them away. That's what we're told here at the end of this passage. Because this was not what they were accustomed to hearing. Because there was a very high esteem on marriage, believe it or not, even in the Old Testament. Even though we see some weird things happening with divorces and all this other stuff, they still viewed marriage and childbearing especially as vitally important. And so what Jesus says now is that marriage and having children basically isn't what the, what the kingdom is about. It blows their mind. And so we see that there is no marriage in the resurrection. Why? 
Well, think about it. First of all, procreation is no longer needed in the eternal state. It says that we will be like angels. Uh, and uh, the idea there is the angels are worshiping God. They are not having children, okay? So in the eternal state, procreation is not needed. But then the other thing, if you remember that uh, the purposes of marriage is to glorify God through companionship, procreation, and union with one another, sexual intimacy, that now we see that the companionship and union with Christ is stronger than any bond we have now. So that's the answer of why. Because in the resurrection, we are going to be with Jesus, united with Jesus. We will be uh, with him forever, and he is better than marriage. Believe it or not, yes, Jesus is better than marriage. Don't miss that point. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Jesus is better than marriage, and therefore heaven is better than marriage. That's our second uh, sub-point here. Heaven is better than marriage. The future that Jesus brings in our relationship with him is better than marriage. So there is no marriage and resurrection. That's what Jesus says here. He says, don't forget, don't think that somehow what we have in this age is going to be projected to the next age. Now that's hard to think about because what does that mean for my relationship with Felicia when we're in heaven, uh, when we're resurrected, when all things are new? Am I going to just not even recognize her? What's going to happen? I think we get too bogged down on those questions. I think God knows that when we're there, everything's going to make sense and it's going to be the best, most wonderful place and relationship that you can ever have with anyone. Jesus will be there. And so Jesus, heaven is better than marriage. Uh, Psalm 1611 uh, is, a, is a verse that we can kind of go to to think about this. A lot of times we think, well, wait a minute, but marriage is so good. It's so pleasurable. Like even if, if you're married here and you understand that sexual intimacy is pleasurable, it's good, it's something you look forward to, it's, it's a good thing, it's a pleasurable thing, and we think, but so marriage is a good thing, it's so pleasurable. What do you mean that heaven is better than marriage? Psalm 1611, um, and Psalm 1611 reminds us that in God's presence are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence there are pleasures forevermore. We can't even imagine it. You see, we can only think about pleasure in the way of what is most, what is most pleasurable to us. Like, I think C.S. Lewis said this. He said something about like a, a child, if he's asked, what's the most pleasurable thing you can think of? He might say chocolate, right? So each of you might have that thing that is the most pleasurable thing that you understand. But even that most pleasurable thing, whether that's marriage, whether that's sexuality in marriage, or whether that's chocolate, if there is something that is that pleasurable, just imagine that what God offers for all of eternity in his presence is so infinitely better than that pleasure, you can't even imagine it. Heaven is better than marriage. And in that mind, I want to read a uh, a quote from the, this book. It's actually a book called Redeeming Singleness. So, uh, but he talks about marriage in here, obviously, and I'm going to be referring to this book many times next week. Uh, but I want to read this extended quote, so listen to it carefully. I think this will help us to understand that as we look at marriage being only for this present age, we look to the eternal state of heaven being so much better. This is what he writes. He says, Indeed, the new heaven and new earth may lack many of the pleasures of this age, 
But that does not imply that we will be living a life of denial or even giving a momentary thought to anything of this earthly existence that we have left behind. What we do know is that Jesus has promised to be preparing a place for us in John fourteen two and 3, where we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2, and that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart has even has man, of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. The fact that there is no marriage in heaven speaks not only to the paucity of our future existence, but also to the greatness of our God. For no earthly human relationship can, can or ever will experience, uh, we, we will stand even as a momentary flicker of a candle in comparison to experiencing the blazing sun of our heavenly existence before the presence of our Almighty God. There is sometimes a tendency, especially among idealistic young uh, people who assume who presume to have most of their years yet before them, that singleness is temporary is a temporary period of one's life until one finds an eternal soulmate in marriage. This passage, the one we just read from Jesus, is a reminder that the scope of eternity and the opposite in the scope of eternity, the opposite is actually the case. Marriage is for a season and time, until, as the traditional marriage vow reads, to death do us part. It is a single and free individuals that we will stand before his throne and live for all eternity. Powerful thoughts there as we think about marriage. And this might just give you a perspective on your marriage. It's good, it's important, but it's not best and it's not most important. We will talk more about the practical practical implications of that later. So, if this is all true, and there is no marriage in the resurrection, and because the place we're going, the future state, is so much better than marriage, we need to trust in the promises of God, because it's easy at this point to start doubting. Saying, I don't think this can really be true. I mean, my marriage, I love my wife, I love my husband unconditionally. Like, I can't imagine a life without them, right? A lot of us have that feeling. You might be thinking that right now. Wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. We need to trust in the promises of God. We need to trust that what God says is true and that what God says is better. And we need to trust him in that, not doubt him. Remember what is the future that is coming. And in order to remember that, we need to go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 reminds us of the future that is coming to all of us who believe in Jesus. And I can guarantee you as I read this passage, this is better than your marriage right now. In Revelation chapter 21, many of you know these verses, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the future that is coming for those who believe in Jesus, those who have committed their lives to the gospel of Christ. I don't know about you, but I know in my marriage there's been tears. I know that even though I'm married, that doesn't protect me from death. There will be mourning, there will be crying, there is pain in marriage. None of those things will be true in eternity. Trust in the promises of God. This is what we have to look forward to. 
I've got to move on to our second principle. So our first principle, marriage is only for this present age. It is not eternal. Second principle we see in Scripture is that marriage is secondary to the mission of God. Marriage is secondary to the mission of God. The mission of God is to glorify himself in the world through the gospel. And so that mission is more important than even your marriage. And here we see that marriage is good, but it shouldn't distract us from serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to go for this. And we're going to be in this passage a whole lot next week. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7 I want to read this passage to you as we talk about this idea that marriage is a good thing, but it shouldn't distract us from serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 through 35. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let us th- let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The, un- to, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. All right, we're going to talk a lot about this next week, so I'm not going to go too far into this, uh, because what seems like he's saying here is just forget marriage. Like, get lost, marriage. Uh, it's not important. Earlier in the passage, Paul makes it very clear that there is a very important reason that marriage exists, and it's to keep us from being distracted from sexual immorality. And he even says here in this passage, he says, I'm not trying to lay any anything on you that is like, you shouldn't be married. But what he's saying here is, even if you are married, live as if you weren't. In your devotion to the Lord. That, that's the key phrase here at the end of this passage. He says, I don't want to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Our devotion to the Lord needs to be so much greater than our devotion to anyone else, and that includes your spouse. God is the one that we have to look to. And if we are not looking to him and serving the Lord and we're allowing our marriage to distract us from what God wants us to do, then our marriage is just that. It's a distraction towards what, and it's keeping us away from what's most important. We are being distracted by the important to ignore the most important. And we need to be very careful about that. We're being distracted by the invitation and forgetting about the marriage. Good marriages may become too important. Bad ones might become too discouraging. Those are ways that we might be distracted. And so we need to live with undivided devotion to the Lord. Now that does not mean you need to get divorced and leave your spouses. That's not the point. God hates divorce. That's not the point here. The point is live as if that you in your marriage can live undivided devotion to the Lord together. And that's what we need to do. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The second point under this idea of marriage is secondary to the mission of God. We see that we shouldn't be distracted by marriage. Then it says, Jesus has called us to follow him above all things, even family. Back to the book of Luke. Hard passages to read, but the book of Luke uh, tells us this very truth that Jesus has called us to follow him above everything, and this includes our family and our wives and our husbands. Luke 14, 26 is where we'll read first. Luke 14, 26, and 
Uh, This is right after that parable of the great banquet that we read earlier. And so he's drawing out of that parable that he says. He's drawing out of that. And this is what he says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa, Jesus. Wow. All right. So Jesus here says you need to hate your family. Now, we could go into a whole study on this verse. And what Jesus is getting here is not the idea of actual hatred. This is a comparative term. But what he's pointing out is that you should be willing and able to even have to turn your back on your family to follow him if that's what's necessary. Not just start hating your family and run away from them, but it's if it's necessary to follow God means you have to turn your back on the people you love most, then that's what you have to do. Because we need to leave everything behind to follow Jesus, not just the convenient things. I hope that never comes for any of you, but maybe you've been in a position where you've had to leave people you love behind you in order to pursue God. And it's hard, and it hurts, and it's not fun, and it doesn't make sense to us. But remember, he is so much greater than anyone and anything. And so Jesus says, even your wife is one of the mentions here. Later on in the book of Luke, he, he talks about this a little bit more. Yeah, just a few chapters over in, in verse eight, or chapter 18. Uh, chapter 18 in the book of Luke, he says in verses 29 and 30, Go back to 28. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, last thing we just read, pretty, pretty big bummer. You get to this point and you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, if you put all everything else behind and you follow me with your whole heart, you're completely devoted to me, then no matter what you had to leave, what you're going to get is so much better. And what are we going to get? Go back to Revelation chapter 21. We are in the presence of God forever. We're in Jesus' presence. There is no more crying, no more pain. Everything is set right. That is what we have to look forward to. And so therefore, no matter what we have to leave in this age is going to be worse than the good that we get that's coming. And so we need to have that perspective. So we need to follow him and serve him above all things, even our family. Again, this is not about abandoning your family, but putting Jesus first. All things flow through him, even your family life. And then just this little statement I want us to remember. Our little kingdom is not what we live for, but we live for his big kingdom. We don't live for our little kingdoms here on earth, our little family kingdoms. We live for his kingdom. That's what we're called to. The third point under this marriage is secondary to the mission of God is the great commission is for all believers, even married ones. The great commission, we we know that if you've been at church at all, to, to go and make disciples of all the nations and teaching them and baptizing them. That is the great commission. That's the last words Jesus gives his followers. He says, go and make disciples. Go and turn the world upside down and preach the gospel to the world. That is the mission of all Christians. And being married doesn't exempt you from that. Being single doesn't exempt you from that. Being a widow doesn't exempt you from that. None of it exempts you from doing that, spreading the gospel, because that's how Christ is 
ultimately glorified through the gospel, the good news that he came to defeat sin and death and that we can have forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. And so the Great Commission in Matthew 28 tells us this is for all believers, even married ones. And this starts with our children. Justin mentioned that as he preached. We, as parents specifically, have to raise our kids up, not just to be good little uh, people that will grow up to be functioning in society. I mean, hopefully that works out for you. They can function well in society. But that's not the main goal. The main mission is to make to have those kids, as you have taught them, you have made disciples. That those kids are discipled into Jesus. That's the point of parenting. Not just to make them respectful to other people, but to make them know Jesus, to allow them, to bring them, to show them Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. We can't just say, well, I'm doing my job of the Great Commission because I have kids. That's a good start, but that it's not an excuse to say, well, I'm not going to worry about making other disciples. We're supposed to make disciples throughout the whole world. The whole point when Jesus talks about this is that disciples are being made everywhere. There's not just certain places that we're making disciples. And therefore, we have an opportunity to not only uh, have uh, repro- you know, physical reproduction and have our kids, but we have an opportunity to have spiritual reproduction and see disciples following after Jesus. And so that's our calling as marriages. That's our calling as individuals. That's our calling as parents. But it's also our calling just to reach out to those around us to make disciples. Our marriages and our families can serve to make disciples. That needs to be the mission of our families. See, I think sometimes we make the mission of our family just to be happy and have fun or to enjoy each other or to not fight, to not fight one another. That's not the goal. The goal is to make disciples. So let's get to our third principle. Third principle is marriage is merely a symbol of a greater relationship. Now, uh, Pastor Justin has already talked about this quite a bit, so I will go through this pretty quickly. Uh, Ephesians 5.32, we've mentioned that before. As Paul is talking uh, about marriage, and in Ephesians 5, he he gives this statement in in verse 32. He's talked about marriage. He's talked about uh, husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands. And he comes to the point of why all this happens. And then you should leave your, your father and your mother and hold fast to your wife. And then in verse 32, it says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus. Marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus. Paul says this is how marriage looks, but this is the reason that we even talk about marriage. It's because it's what Jesus did for us. It's how Jesus saved us. It's how he loves us. And Pastor Justin did a great job of explaining that last week, so I won't go too much further with that. But think about this idea of a picture. You can have a picture of a person, and that's wonderful. But if that, but if you never see the person face to face, and don't we understand this now? You can see somebody on a computer screen, and that's great. But it's not the same as seeing them in person. And so marriage is great. Marriage is like Zoom, right? It's great, it can work, but it's not what's most, that's not the best. Like Zoom fills a, fills a gap, but it doesn't give us what we really desire to be with the other people. So think about it that way. The gospel is being pictured by what we show in our marriage. Next thing is marriage is an invitation to the future marriage feast with Jesus. And this gets back to our illustration. Marriage is an invitation to the future marriage feast with Jesus. And we read this this morning if you were part of our singing service. But let me go back and read this passage again in in Revelation 19. 
This is the future. This is what is coming. This is the most important marriage that we see in all of Scripture. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. The time where it will be, the, the eternal state will be instituted, that we will be with Jesus, that we will, in, we will have all the pleasures that come along with his presence. That is coming and that is the greatest wedding, the greatest marriage. And our marriage is simply an invitation to that marriage. It's not meant then to be like going back to our illustration that we care so much about the invitation that we forget what it's about. But I think a lot of times we can do that. A lot of times we get so focused on our marriages and our families and it's laser focused that we forget what the whole point is. We're looking horizontal and we forget to look vertical. So marriage is an invitation to this future marriage feast that we can have with Jesus. Dining with Jesus and being married to him is our great and final destiny. That is our great destiny, to be married to Jesus. And I know that sounds weird, especially if you're a guy, right? To be married to another guy. That's not the point here. The point is the intimacy that we will have with Jesus is going to be as if it's the greatest greatest marriage ever. That's the whole point of the marriage supper of the Lamb, is that we will have intimacy that we can't even imagine. And that's eternal. Our marriages aren't, but this marriage is. And so let's live like our marriage is an invitation and not the end. Let's not forget the end in order to stare at the invitation. And I already said this earlier. I'll say it one more time. As marriage is simply a symbol of a greater relationship, we finally see that Jesus is better than your spouse. You, You know what? It might even be a good idea for you to look at your spouse sometime and be like, Jesus is better than you. Because it's true. I don't care how wonderful the person is sitting next to you. I have a wonderful wife. You all, a lot of you have wonderful spouses. If you're not married, you have wonderful parents, wonderful friends. But I can guarantee you, none none of them compare to Jesus. So yes, wake up in the morning and look at your spouse and say, I love you, but Jesus is better. Do it. Remind yourselves that Jesus is better. No matter how much you love your spouse, he or she is not God and they never will be. Jesus promises in scripture that he loves us unconditionally and he will never leave us or forsake us. As much as you think you can say that about other people, that's not always true. They do not love you unconditionally. You might talk about it that way, but it's not the same. It's not the same love. It's just not. And yes, even the person you love so greatly can hurt you and leave you, forsake you even. Hopefully that doesn't come to it, but Jesus never will. And so Jesus is better than your spouse. Jesus is better than your kids. Jesus is better than your family. Jesus is better than everything and everyone. All right, so those are our principles, and I know I took almost all my time. So now we're going to go through a super, super fast practical implication. All right, so we've got three practical implications. We're going to run through it, so just stay with me. All right, I know I'm going to talk fast. There's a lot of information that I wanted to talk about. 
Probably could have took a couple weeks, but i got to talk about singleness next week. So here we go. All right, so practical implications of what we've talked about. First of all, center your marriage around the Lord. Center your marriage around Jesus. And I want to say real quickly, I don't even really like this statement of centering because a lot of times we think, all right, so I've got all these circles in my life. I've got family, I've got spouse, I've got work, I've got church, I've got this and that, I've got sports, whatever. And we get these circles and we say, all right, as long as these circles are all in a circle and in the middle is the Jesus circle, then I guess that's good. But really the picture I want you to see is a big circle that's Jesus and then all the other circles come inside the big circle. Right? That's the point of fellowshipping with God, with Jesus, of focusing on Jesus. And so what does it mean to center our marriage around the Lord, to center our marriage around Jesus? Well, we need to fight for our spouse's eternity. We need to look at them and understand that they have an eternal life that is coming, and not just to worry about making them happy in this time, but to look to see how you can further them in their relationship with Jesus, because that's what's eternal. And so we focus on the eternity that's coming. That means that we have hard conversations with our spouses. That means that we might have to say, hey, Jesus is better than you. Whatever you need to do, we fight for our spouse's eternity. In life, we need to make sure that we fight the temptation to just look at ourselves or to look at our spouse, but to look at Jesus. You know, a lot of times in life, we try to figure out who we are by either looking in, inward or looking at our spouse and saying, this is my identity. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your spouse and look to Jesus. And your spouse looks to Jesus too, and you're both looking at Jesus, and it works out wonderfully. Pray for each other and pray with each other. I'll just be honest real quick. This is, this, is a, this is one that's been a struggle in my relationship with Felicia. We can pray. We pray a lot. But do we pray with each other a lot? And, and the, the sad answer is no. And I've been convicted about that this week. Because if we really want to be centered around Jesus, we need to be praying together. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be praying with each other about the life that we're living. And praying that God will show us the mission that he has set before us. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit to transform you in your marriage. It's not on you. See, that's the other thing. A lot of times when we come to marriage sermons, it's always about, okay, do X, Y, Z, your marriage will be better. You need to do this better. Men, you need to love more. Women, you need to submit more. Whatever it might be. And we, it could be very easy to get very dogmatic about it. But here's the thing. Submit to God, center yourself around Him, and let the Holy Spirit transform you from the inside out, and that will come out in your marriage as well. The Holy Spirit doesn't just transform individual lives. He transforms corporate lives. He can transform your marriage. He can transform a church. We need to be reminding each other of the gospel every day. Every day, remind your spouse of the gospel. Remind yourself and remind your spouse because that's a way that you can disciple one another. This is the Sunday school answer. The next one, read the Bible. But here's the thing, reading the Bible together, a lot of times when marriages are, especially when they're having trouble, they'll start saying, well, we need to read the Bible so that we can fix our marriage. Listen, the Bible is not an instruction book for marriage. The Bible is an instruction book, if anything, if you want to call it that, on a relationship with God. But I can guarantee you, if you are reading the Bible, not just to fix something in your life, but you're reading the Bible to know God better, that the things that you need to fix will kind of fall into place. And that's not a promise that I'm saying everything will get better if you start reading your Bible, but I am saying that even if it doesn't get better, you'll have a different perspective. I can almost guarantee that. And if you can do this, if you can center your marriage around the Lord, then the circumstances that you face, whether good or bad, won't determine the health of your marriage. If you are centered around the Lord, if you are, if everything is in 
Jesus' circle, if everything's in there in your marriage, and your marriage is in that, and you're, you've centered around him, then no matter what comes your way, terrible loss, ex- exciting times, whatever it is, you can make it through with the strength of the Lord because you are centered around him. You have anchored yourself in him and not in your marriage. So many marriages fall apart because bad things happen. That's because a lot of times the anchoring system has been to one another, but the anchoring needs to be to Jesus. All right, second implication. Serve the Lord with your marriage. Serve the Lord with your marriage. First way you can do this is to be involved in a local church. Uh, nuclear families need extended family. So you have your family, that's wonderful. You have your spouse and your kids. You need more than just that. The Bible talks about the church being the place where all generations come together to worship God, to build one another up, uh, to spur one another on to love and good works. Your family is not immune to this or an exception to this. You need the local church. You need other people. You need this extended family because that's what church is, right, guys? This is not just the institution or the building that you come to every week. I hope it's not. This is meant to be family. And so if this is family, then your little family needs to be part of the bigger family. You get to come to a good family reunion every week. I know most family reunions aren't always good, but this one is. And you can bring your family into the church. So make sure you're involved in a church Uh, You need to serve your family and lead them to Jesus, too. Like, the point of serving your family is not just to have a happy life, but to lead them to Jesus. So your kids and your wife will know Jesus, will pursue Jesus, or your husband, depending on where you're at. Uh, Another thing out of this, don't isolate yourselves, but invest in others, and let others invest in you. I think one of the greatest things that, or the greatest problems that face marriages a lot of times is isolation. We think that somehow we have our spouse that it's just us two and no more. Or maybe we add some kids. It's us four and no more. Whatever it might be. And when we isolate ourselves from other couples, or we isolate ourselves from single people, or we isolate ourselves from other, just anyone, because we just want to be our own little thing, you are just asking for it to fall apart. We need each other's help. So don't isolate yourselves. Invest in others. Use your marriage and your family to invest in others. Invite people over for dinner. Go out and pursue some mission for the Lord together as a couple, as a family. This is what our calling is. Remember, the Great Commission is for families and spouses too. Remember that as you serve God together, it'll bring unity and joy. It'll bring unity and joy. Personal illustration, I don't want to take too long. My marriage with Felicia for a long time, I would say the first seven, eight years, uh, we didn't get this. We didn't get this idea of serving God together, that it would bring joy. See, my wife, she had her ministry, which was the kids, right? She had her ministry, she was at home, and that's an important ministry. It was a good ministry. But then I had my ministry at church. And, And so what easily, really quickly happened is I didn't do, I didn't dabble too much with her ministry, and she didn't really dabble too much with my ministry, and it was like we were going on two different paths, even though we thought we were walking together, but we were just dividing. And, and I'll tell you what, there were some bad times in our marriage, and I'll specifically tell you when that was. That was when we first came here. It was interesting because we were really, really struggling on how do we do this life where we all, each have our own ministries and we were going two different directions. And I had to understand as a husband that I needed to step into my wife's ministry at home and she needed to understand that she needed to step into my ministry in the church and we started ministering together. And I'll tell you what, 
we didn't become more compatible. We didn't become more attracted to each other. But I'll tell you what, we had a whole lot of more unity and we had a whole lot more joy in our relationship with each other. I'm not saying our marriage is perfect. We still have days. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, what binds us together is when we serve together. I can't imagine a life right now without a wife that serves alongside of me. And I know I'm a pastor, but that this is not just for pastors. This is for all of you. Find ways to serve together. You won't regret it. Sorry, I took too long on that one. Don't fall for the family time or date date night myth. Okay, I'm going to be careful here. Don't fall for the family time or date night myth as we talk about serving the Lord with your marriage. Involvement in the mission of God is always better than family time as it lasts forever. Involvement in the mission of God is always better than family time as it lasts forever. Now, I do not want to be, this is not, okay, I'm not being a legalist. I am not saying that you never, ever, ever should be absent from church to be with your family. Maybe that is something that you need to consider. But here's what I want to say. I've heard time and time again where people will say, I'm not involved in church, or I'm not coming to church, or I'm not going to do, uh, I'm not going to serve in some way or another. And I get this a lot because there's always opportunities to serve, and I'll ask people, and this is almost, I get this response a lot. And I'm not trying to isolate this on anyone. Please don't take this to be targeted at anybody. But so many times I've heard the answer, I just really can't get involved because I, that's my family night, or that, that's my date night, or I need to work on my family before I serve here. And I'm not saying that's always wrong because sometimes you really do need to do that. But don't just throw it out as an excuse. Like, oh, the pastor can't be mad at me if I say I'm spending time with my family. That's what it feels like. And and we can't be like that. Don't make family, which we're going to get to in a minute, your spouse, an idol. Don't replace what God has made that's so good and so wonderful to serve one another in the mission of God. Serve together. That's my point. You know what? Instead of having a date night, maybe find a way to go and to serve one another, to serve with one another. Find a time to do that. Instead of family night to sit around the TV and watch, that's fine. You can do that. But maybe take a family time to to go and serve somebody. It's a wonderful time that you can use as a family to serve the Lord, to come together and show him the glory that he deserves. All right, last implication. Don't make your marriage an idol. I already said that. Don't make your marriage an idol. Here's some simple things as I go quickly. Having a happy marriage or a happy family is not the goal of Christianity. It is becoming more like Jesus and leading others to him. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that a happy marriage or a happy family is the goal of Christianity because it's not. The goal of Christianity, as I said, is to glorify God, to become more like Christ, to lead others to him. Don't find your ultimate satisfaction Uh, in your spouse, but find your ultimate satisfaction in God himself. Don't think that somehow your spouse is going to uh, satisfy you completely. They never will, but God can and will. Fixing your marriage won't fix your life. However, getting right with Jesus could fix your marriage. And I say could because it's not a guarantee. A lot of times people think, oh, my life is really just kind of upside down right now. The, The reason is because my marriage isn't good enough. If I fix my marriage, then everything else will be good. No, probably not. Something else will go wrong. But if you focus on your relationship with God, then hopefully all things will fall behind. Don't hinder your spouse or children from following their calling. It's another way we can make a marriage an idol or a family an idol. We can say, I, I've seen this with, specifically with kids that want to like go to mission fields. You know, parents will say, yeah, I don't think that's really what you want to do. This is what you should do instead. 
don't discourage people from following the calling that God has put in their life. Maybe that's your spouse. Your spouse wants to do a ministry. Instead of saying, ah, I, don't, I don't really want to, I don't, if you do that ministry, we're going to have less time together. Instead of doing that, say, you know what, what can I do to help you minister? Don't be the one that stops your family, your spouse from ministering. I saw that in Bible college where I had many friends who were called to a life of ministry, but then they got a girl involved and all of a sudden their calling disappeared. And I'm not sure where it went, except that they wanted to have the girl over the calling. Don't do that. Meet your, get your needs met in Christ, not your spouse. We all need security, love, belonging, all those things. Don't find them in your spouse. Find them in God. If you find them in your spouse, then you're making them an idol. Our relationship with God must first and foremost must be first and foremost before any other relationship. We already talked about this. This is if it's not, then uh, we have made something else an idol. So truly live a God-focused life, not a family-focused life. I'm not here to say that focus on the family is always wrong, but I, I am afraid that that concept of focusing on the family has cost us from focusing on Jesus. We need to make sure we don't do that. Live a God-focused life. And this is the question that we all need to ask. Do I spend more time focusing on being a good spouse and parent, or do I spend more time focusing on being a godly person? That's an important question to ask. Because I'll tell you, a lot of times I find myself just trying to be a better father or a better husband, and I don't really think about, no, I just need to be more like Jesus. Finally, don't look at marriage as the ultimate destination of fulfillment. Don't look at marriage as the ultimate destination of fulfillment. Whether your marriage that you're in now, or here's where we kind of jump to the singleness idea. There is so much more to come. It's important for married people to remember that marriage is not the ultimate destination. It is also vital for single people too because single people need to understand that the ultimate destination is not marriage. The ultimate destination is Jesus. And so therefore, whether you're married or not married, are you focusing and looking to him or are you looking at a relationship, a marriage being more important than it needs to be? If marriage has become more important than God, it is an idol. It's not like we can sugarcoat this. Listen, if your marriage is more important to you than serving, loving, and being a person who's following God, then it is an idol and you are an idolater and you are turning your back on God to serve other gods. We all say we would never be like Israel that did that, but yet so many times we can be there. As I, I have three questions in the conclusion, but one last thing I want to say about all this is this. Please don't take me wrong. Marriage is very, very good. But it is not best. So pursue marriage hard. Love marriage. Pursue your spouse well. Love your spouse well. Submit to your spouse well. But love and submission isn't just to make each other like each other more. Love and submission is to show Jesus to be better. And so your marriage is so vital and so important if you're married. But it's not everything. Look to Jesus. He's everything, not your marriage. So three questions. One, are you looking forward to the great marriage supper with Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, so you think about sitting down at a table and having fellowship with the God of the universe is kind of weird and scary because you don't have a real relationship with him. You need to know the gospel, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross so that he'd pay the penalty for your sin, the times you've turned away from him. He rose again to show that sin and death had no power over him or over us if we will submit to him, if we will follow him, if we will believe in him and trust in him and turn away from 
uh, our selfish way of life and turn towards Jesus. That is the gospel. That is good news that he came, even though you deserve to go to hell and, and never experience the relationship with God again, Jesus came and died and rose again so that you could. That is good news. And if you don't know that good news, don't leave today without talking to me or someone else around here who knows the gospel and find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus because then you too can look forward to the great marriage supper with Jesus along with us. Two other questions. Does your life and marriage drive yourself to others or drive yourself and others to Jesus? Does your life and marriage drive yourself and others to Jesus? And if it's not, ask God for his grace. Ask God to help you do that. And finally, have you placed too much importance on your spouse and family? Have you made your spouse and family an idol? If that's the case, repent. Turn. Go the right way. Follow Jesus above all else. Those are the things that we can do as we close. Thank you for your time. I know it was long. I'm going to close in prayer. After I do, do not leave your seats. Actually, Bill Baker is going to come up. He has an announcement to make to our family. If you're watching online, we're going to go ahead and record that portion and send it out later, but it won't be live. All right, so let's pray as we close this time. Lord, I thank you so much for this time that you've given us. Remind us that marriage is not the most important thing in this world, and God, help us to live in light of that, whatever that looks like. God, help us to glorify you in our marriages. Help us to glorify you as singles. Help us to glorify you as children. Help us to glorify you as uh, widows or widowers. Help us to glorify you wherever we are in whatever stage of life we find ourselves in, God. Help us to do that and help us not to elevate anything above you. I pray all this in Jesus' name.